Hey, I'm Serge. And I'm Peter. And we're with the Future Break Podcast, where we talk about emerging technology, human behavior, and what this means for the future. Find out how Russia is using technology to suppress free speech. And how a school without teachers or tuition is changing the future of education. You can find our show on your favorite podcast player or by going to futurebreak.net. You are now entering the Podglomerate. I have a fundamental worldview that is people, you know, across cultures, genders, and races, like, you know, we have far more in common as a species than we do different. Hello. Aha. We did it. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Kyle. I'm Jeff. And this is the first time in 45 episodes that Kyle is the one that fucked up his audio. Fraught with technical difficulties. It's just what happens. Sometimes it takes a village. And every one of you listening should virtually pat me on the back because I can't tell you how many times I've been in Kyle's shoe. Shoe? Shoe. And this week on the show, we have Elliot Ackerman. Oh, you're just going to get right to it, huh? This is, this, what a treat. Tell me about Elliot Ackerman. <laughs> Elliot Ackerman is the author of two books, uh, both novels. Both take place from non-American perspectives, uh, which is super refreshing. Um, the books are Green on Blue and Dark at the Crossing. Uh, Dark at the Crossing is currently nominated for the National Book Award for Fiction. He's one of five authors that are nominated, so good luck to all of them, and especially Elliot. He is also a super accomplished journalist who writes for Esquire, The New Yorker, GQ. Uh, we talk about a lot of the pieces that he he's written for some of these outlets uh, in the interview. And uh, you know, beyond that, he also has like a really distinguished career in the military. And, and that comes, the reason I mention any of that is because it comes through a lot in his writing. He covers a lot of issues in the military and the Marines and uh, is generally speaking just like a really, really talented and, and bright person and, and really fun to talk to. We also have a totally unrelated thing to promote this month. It's called National Novel Writing Month. Uh, NaNoWriMo, for those of you who, like Jeff, love to abbreviate things. But it's a fun, seat-of-your-pants approach to creative writing. On November 1st, participants begin working towards the goal of creating a 50,000-word novel by 11.59 p.m. on November 30th. So right. so it, it, it's, it's not collectively. It's just thousands of people individually writing their own novels. Uh, I don't have any examples in front of me, but I do know that, that a lot of the novels that you know and love have come from this activity, and uh, we wanted to help promote it because it's just like, I, I don't know anything that would fit better with the theme of the show. Uh, get off your bums and write. I think it's a really cool idea. I wonder if anybody's going to start up a national novel editing month that immediately follows novel writing month. Well, December, everyone's already busy. Uh, so where can people find out more about this? Go to nanoremo.org. That's N-A-N-O-W-R-I-M-O.org to find out more about how you can get involved. Now let's get to the show. Welcome to the show, Elliot. How you doing? Good. Thank you guys for having me. Of course. You've had a big week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a, it's been eventful. You've had a big year, but Elliot was just announced as a finalist for the National Book Award for his most recent title, Dark at the Crossing. So, can you 
Jeff is looking for a National Book Award hot take. Yeah. Hot, uh, hot take. What's it um, feel like? Oh, I, th- I think, uh, you know, I was surprised to be on the short list just because there's so many books um, that come out. So I think, you, want, you know, one, one doesn't ex- necessarily expect such things. Um, you know, and then once you're on the short list, you know, you're obviously, you know, hoping that things work out and you, you, you get on the, um, I'm starting on the short list. Once you're on the long list, you, you know, you hope that it would be nice to be on the short list. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's nice that that worked out. So, um, I don't know if there's a hot take per se, <laughs> um, you know, you, you hope these things will help the book find more readers. Um, so that's nice. And, uh, you know, it gets, means I get to take my girlfriend to a nice black tie dinner, so that's great. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, aside from that, I think you know what what matters is the work, and, and these things don't really change anything have, with, with respect to that. Have there been any immediate effects, any immediate changes in your life since becoming a shortlisted? You mean in the last week? Yeah. No, what's what's no, <laughs> no 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 effects no changes. It's remarkable how uh, how stubbornly persistent life seems to be. <laughs> well, I feel like it's you know you get a little bit you get you get a few more hits in your Google search results and uh, you know people in the the publishing world like kind of fawn all over you. Um, you know we just for anybody no for anybody who cares we booked Elliot before we knew that he was even nominated. Uh, so you're you're real stand-up guys yeah (laughs) well you know i i don't want to advance too far into into your career because you actually have you know a lot of highlights that that i want to cover um so you know without without going too far back i kind of was curious like when you decided that you wanted to be a writer and how you went about achieving that goal um you know my mother's a novelist so I, uh, I grew, you know, I grew up around books and, uh, I grew up knowing writers. So, you know, it didn't seem, you know, quite the, you know, quite the most insane thing that one can do when I, when I decided that I wanted to write and I studied history and literature, uh, at school. Um, but, uh, you know, I wound up going into the Marine Corps before I started seriously writing and, um, you know, I always thought even when I was in the core that I might get out and write someday. And there were a couple of times that I, you know, I made what I would say were one or two false starts of trying to write while I was in the Marines, but it just, it, you know, it, it never, you know, it never felt right. Um, and strangely it was actually, I was in Afghanistan and literally had handed in my resignation the day before. And if you were to ask me, you know, when's the moment where you started making, you know, your first real serious attempts at writing fiction, it was literally the next day uh, with what turned into a short story. So um, for whatever reason, I kind of needed the, um, that break of, you know, the ending of my, of, you know, one chapter of my life, which was a chapter in the military. I needed to know that that break had occurred before I, for whatever reason, before psychologically, I could start seriously turning my attentions to writing. What what marked the difference between the false starts and what would become the actual serious uptake of writing? I think it was just uh, I didn't think what I was playing around with was any good. And I think it felt like it was something that was go- still going on in the moment. Um, and so because it was still going on, I couldn't really write about it. Um, and, and, you know, and the first subject I was wrestling with was my you know, was 
it was my military experience and my, my experience abroad. I was sort of trying to take that and put it into a story, but I felt like it wasn't over. So I, I couldn't really uh, quite wrap my arms around how to, to get into it. Um, but once, for whatever reason, psychologically, once I knew that it was over, that was when I really started trying to um, you know, see the whole thing and felt like the attempts I was making were, were serious and worthwhile. Even that distance of the next day was enough after the end. It was a psycho. It was a psychological difference, sort of a psychological line of departure. So you you said that you had made a couple attempts before that, and they just didn't really work out. You know, what did they look like? You know, you sat down with a pen and paper, uh, you know, in your barracks one night, and and you you came out with something that you weren't happy with, or you just had writer's block? Because, I mean, first and foremost, this is a podcast about about how people write, uh, you know, meant to help inspire new writers. You know, it wasn't even it wasn't even something serious. It was like I tried to write a page, wrote it, was like, this is dumb, and threw it away. And I was like, yeah, it's sort of like, <laughs> I'm, not do- I'm, not, I'm not doing this right now. You know, I'm like in the yeah. middle of this thing. I've got, I'm on deployment. I've got however many 20 things to do tomorrow and we're you know sending a patrol up into here like i'm not it's like i'm not writing fiction at this moment in my life um so but once that kind of moment was over uh, you know i don't those first attempts weren't like attempts i was hugely proud of but i could see like the ideas i was putting down on the page had had merit and were moving me forward towards work that uh you know i would feel come to feel proud of um so you know, so I just, I just think, you know, like there's a, you know, there's, I mean, there, there's a real discipline to, to writing and sitting there every day and kind of crafting the ideas. And so I just say those were my first, you know, serious steps was, was literally right, right when I decided I was going to leave. And why did you join the Marines? You know, cause you, you had said earlier that you kind of knew from the beginning that you wanted to pursue a career in writing, you know, was this, you know, a way of finding new experiences that you could write about? Uh, well, the short the short answer is always just the uniforms. It's, it's, it's a joke. They make um, they make you look good. <laughs> you look good. That's uniforms. Uh, um, I think it's complicated. You know, I grew up abroad. I grew up. You know, I mean, nowhere too exotic, but I grew up in London. But I think living there, you know, gave me a great opportunity to travel, uh, and I think put sort of my American identity in juxtaposition to other identities and sort of, you know, gave me a real sense when I moved back to the States, you know, that I wanted to sort of, you know, pay something back um, and serve in some way. I had always been uh, inherently interested in the military, um, you know, and I consider myself a fortunate son, you know, like I came from a great family. I got to go to good schools. Uh, I, you know, I had every opportunity one could imagine having coming out of this country. So I think all of that combined, uh, a sense of wanting to, to give something back and, and an innate interest in the military, you know, led me into the Marine Corps. Um, and then I joined, I did ROTC in college and started that in 1998. So it's pre 9-11 and then 9-11 happened while I was at school. And so then things became, you know, much, much more real uh, in, in a very short amount of time. And now it seems like most of the nonfiction that you write has to do with, you know, current wars or, or kind of like reconciling with the wars that you were a part of, uh, or speaking with, with writers who were part of other wars. 
uh, I mean, obviously there's a link there, but is that an intended thing or, or do you kind of one day feel like you want to you know, write about something else? Yeah, you know, I don't really, I mean, I've, I think I write about, the nonfiction I write is about, like, international affairs, and, you know, a lot of it's in the Middle East, and I think by definition, if you're writing about the Middle East, you're writing about war at this point. Uh, in so many ways, when you're writing about U.S. interests abroad, um, you know, you wind up writing about conflict. Um, so, uh, so I think a lot of the nonfiction that I do you know, has, I don't view it as though I'm necessarily writing about war. You know, when, when, when you say that, it's like as though you're like writing about tanks and rifles and fighter planes. Um, but I think I'm, you know, I, I'm, I certainly tend to write about politics and conflict. Mm. Um, and, you know, my, my experience of politics and conflict um, obviously informs the way that I see the world so frequently you know, the wars will creep up or something that happened in Iraq will creep up. Um, so, um, you know, I think as a, you know, as a writer, one can never entirely escape their experience. You can't escape your experience as a writer. You are your experience. It's interesting that, you know, your life experiences give you a, a, a lens in into looking at, at the conflicts that are occurring abroad uh, that a lot of people don't necessarily have in their head. So, um it seems like that's informed a lot of the the writing that you're doing. Um, and that's probably why you're in such high demand from some of these really like large outlets because, because you have that kind of access and you have that, you know, thought process. Would you say that that's accurate? You know, I think that, you know, Faulkner has this great quote It's from his Nobel prize acceptance speech. And he said, you know, the only thing worth writing about is the human heart and conflict with itself. And I think, you know, whether you're a novelist or, you know, or, or with, you know, literary nonfiction, I mean, everyone's sort of circling that same subject, which is, you know, what it means to be a person. And frequently the way we're exploring what it means to be a person is we're telling stories where there's some type of inherent conflict baked into it. You know, well, when you think about that, I think when you look at war, particularly, it's a, you know, it's a, it's an, it's a extremely, um, fertile endeavor to explore those themes because if you think about it the, the conflict is baked into it you know it's you know we you know the one the one law that kind of is fundamental to all civilization is thou shalt not thou shalt not kill i mean like that's kind of what it's all built around thou shalt not kill and so in war we cast off that fundamental law and embark on widespread sanctioned killing usually in the name of preserving some type of civilization. So the conflict is like hired, hardwired into everything that is going on in war. Um, you know, or to put it more succinctly to, uh, to quote John Lennon, uh, which is, you know, fighting for peace is like fucking for virginity. So, um, so I think that that's why, you know, I think, but I, so I think, you know, you know, I, I, so, you know, at the same time, as someone who's experienced the war, you know, obviously like people will read my bio into much of what I'm writing. Um, but oftentimes like my bio is not really in it. Um, like, so to share an anecdote with you all, I remember when my first book green on blue came out, I was doing a reading, uh, in San Francisco with Tony Mara. Uh, you know, if you're familiar with his work, I mean, a great writer, 
wrote A Constellation for Vital Phenomena, which is his first book, and then had an amazing short story collection coming out called The Last Sorrow of Love and Techno, which came out like a year or two ago. Anyways, we finished um, our reading, and as we were sort of walking out, he kind of asked me a variation of the question you guys asked. He said, you know, hey, Ellie, like, what's your next book about? You know, you think you're going to write about something, you know, other than war? Is it going to be another war novel? And I said to him about Green on Blue, I said, well, hey, you know, Tony, like, you know, all, all due respect, like, I think, you know, Green on Blue is actually this novel about two brothers, and it deals with these themes of, you know, what it means to be loyal to one another, and, and he's kind of like, okay, Elliot, yeah, 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 but, like, you fought in Afghanistan, you wrote a book about two <laughs> Afghan brothers, like, it's a war novel. And I was like, uh, okay, well, you know, Tony, fair enough, but, like, you know, your book, A Constellation for Vital Phenomena, you know, is set in Grozny. Like, during the war, the war against the Russians, like, by that token, like, you wrote a war novel, too. You know, and by background, like, you know, Tony, you know, went to the Iowa Writers Workshop, you know, was never, I mean, never really went to a war. Um, so, you know, what is a war novel? What isn't a war novel? Um, and, you know, you know, I mean, obviously, like, I kind of bristle under those distinctions because, I, you know, I feel like it closes things off. And when you, get, when you say war novel, it's like as though we're writing about airplanes and tanks. I don't think that's what you're writing about. I mean, you're writing about the, the human heart in conflict with itself. So I guess my question would be, is your next novel, regardless of whether it takes place during war, is it going to be about the struggle of identity within a single person? Um. <clears throat> Well, my I mean, my next book is scheduled is done. It's scheduled to come out in uh, fall of twenty eighteen. Uh, it's a short novel, but um, you know that I mean, and you know that book is basically um, uh, about someone who has been uh, you know grievously hurt, is incapacitated, lying in a hospital bed, and that's how you meet this person when you meet when when in the opening pages, and they suffer a stroke. And suffering that stroke, their sort of mind comes awake for a moment, and you sort of see this uh, love triangle that existed in their life before they were hurt. Uh, and so it's really a, a novel about uh, a marriage, uh, and about uh, and again about this theme of loyalty, which is sort of coming back to uh, to green on blue. So you know, I, you know, I think with each book, you know, obviously you have these questions, and I think with Dark at the Crossing. Um, you know, the question I was sort of circling around a little bit was this one of identity, you know, a man of split identities, you know, the idea of causes, you know, the causes that people fight for, how they invest themselves uh, emotionally in those causes. You know, and I was writing that book sort of, you know, while I was covering um, the Syrian civil war. And the thing that sort of struck me, uh, you know, amongst you know, many of the activists uh, you know, who I became friendly with, uh, and it was something I also recognized in my own experience, you know, was this idea that, you know, they had gone out into the streets, you know, with these very high-minded ideals that in some respects were kind of irrefutable, you know, which was to demand democratic reforms to an authoritarian regime through peaceful protest. Like, that's what they were doing in Syria. And they started this revolution, mm -hmm. and it basically ran off the rails. And, uh, you know, there were many of them who would say, you know, I've destroyed my own. You know, like I was completely in love with the revolution. I was in love with the idea of what we could do. You can't imagine how it felt to live under this authoritarian regime and then to go out into the streets and, you know, scream your mind uh, in a protest for once in your life. But then it's basically the reciprocal has been my home is destroyed and I can never return to it. And so if I were to summarize, you know, 
the emotion I thought most acutely, you know, it was heartbreak. And there's a lot of heartbroken people. Uh, and because uh, and why are they heartbroken? You know, you can't, you know, your heart can't break if you weren't in love. And these people were in love with the revolution and all that it represented. And so, you know, often what I'm sort of searching for, um, you know, because a lot of the fiction I write is political, but it's taking these very complex political themes and you're trying to distill them down into an accessible story um, that will take the reader on a emotional arc that is sort of similar to the emotional arc they might they might travel if they were actually involved in these events. And so what kind of dawned on me as I was, you know, going through the novel early on was, you know, the process of going through a revolution is kind of like the, and falling in love with those ideas. It's sort of like the falling in love with a person. And you, know, you and that person will take your two separate worlds and combine them for sort of a shared vision of this joint world you will have together in a marriage. And sometimes that works out, but sometimes it all falls apart. And then there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of destruction that's left. So I sort of, in this novel, uh, you know, wound up telling the story of a failed revolution through the much more intimate prism of a failed marriage, you know, and that's really the, the, the crux of the book. And so once you, once you start the, the mental process of boiling it down from that concept of heartbreak till you get to, uh, starting to see it through the failed marriage, how do you start to distill that into the actual book itself? Like, where do you, where do you go to get perspective on where the story should start and who the main characters are? Well, I mean, for me, the, I usually don't, I kind of won't know what the book is about until I'm like halfway to two thirds of the way through it. Oftentimes, sometimes sooner. I mean, sometimes, sometimes <laughs> later. Um, so that's sort of the horrible, you know, gut wrenching thing as you're sitting at your desk with 200 pages of a manuscript that you're not sure is going to work. Um, and, um, you know, knock wood, uh, you know, oftentimes I'm lucky and I'm able to sort of pull it out and figure out, yes, like this is why my subconscious is writing the book this way. This is sort of what I'm getting at. This is who this character is. And then it all starts to make sense. You know, and for me, frankly, when it starts to make sense, like that's the, you know, that's the real joy. That's when it's all worth it. Um, but, um, you know, and each book is a little different. Like in my first, you know, my first book, Green on Blue, um, you know, I really understood, I think, the themes of that book pretty early on, but I didn't know how it was going to end. Uh, and I had sort of set up this very binary ending in the book. So not knowing how it was going to end, um, you know, it was pretty intimidating until like the very, you know, until, until I was doing the last writing of it and sort of all started to make sense. Uh, whereas this book, I actually, I knew how it was going to end pretty early on, but what was more difficult was sort of lining everything up for that ending. So, um, so, you know, each book is a little bit, is a little bit different. And, um, I, you know, I think there's a lot of faith one has to have in just showing up to do the work every day. Um, because you're showing up to basically, I mean, you know, spend time with these characters and, uh, you know, get to know them, put them in scenes, you know, and see what they do. And then when they start behaving on their own, I mean, you, you know, they, you know, they'll, they give you the answers. And I always hate it when care, you know, when writers talk about their characters, like they're these real people, but like, it's cause it sounds like psycho battle, but it's actually, I mean, it's true. That's what happens. Well, no, that's what I want to know is like when you started with Horace, where did you start? Like what, what was the first scene that you wrote with him? You know, you know, first, I think you start with a lot of, a lot of faith. Um, 
But, you know, in this, in Dark of the Crossing in particular, you know, I had come back from a reporting trip, um, you know, to southern, southern Turkey slash northern Syria. And I was actually um, at the Texas Book Festival and I was staying with, uh, uh, with Ben Fountain and he and I were, you know, up late drinking and just sort of talking and he was asking about the trip. And I explained to him this one day that I had spent um, down at the border crossing near Killis, where the opening of the book is. And we were just talking about that. And he, and he said, hey, man, he said, you know, you should write it. You should write about that. And I sort of thought, I was like, you know, maybe I will. And so I sat down maybe three or four days later and I started just sort of describing everything that was going on, what, the, what it looked like. And I realized, you know, this like I, very quickly, I was like, you know, this isn't a piece of journalism. And... Um, Meaning, you know, the first page, I was like, this isn't a piece of journalism. And I was just sort of writing, describing, describing. And then, you know, very quickly, you know, as one does in fiction, you know, you're not, you're not writing about what happened. You're writing about like what could have happened or what should have happened. Or, you know, you're thinking of a person you saw and you're wondering what their story really was. And because you don't know what it was, you know, you just start sort of, you know, trying to, you know, trying to step in and, and imagine it. Um, so that, so that sort of scene in Killis um, was very much rooted in, in, in my experience. I mean, the characters weren't, but the way everything was laid out was. And then from there, um, you know, the characters started filling, filling the void and, and, you know, and the story began. So that is how, uh, Dark at the Crossing started, but, you know, books and stories, you know, each one starts differently. Often with me, they'll just start with an opening line that will sort of pop into my head. You know, like Green on Blue's opening line is, uh, Many people call me a dishonest man. I've always kept faith with myself. There's an honesty in that, I think. Like, I've been carrying that line in my, in my mind for a while, and that became the beginning of the novel. Yeah. It, it's interesting to me because, I mean, first off, your third book, the forthcoming one, sounds like it could be something that Ian McEwen wrote, and I'm excited to read it. Uh, <laughs> but my question for you is that, you know, your books are both novels, but like there is a very easy and conceivable world in which both of these stories like actually happened and some kind of iteration I'm sure did happen in both instances. So, I mean, I guess like at what point did you decide that your first book and then your second book would be a novel as opposed to like a nonfiction story that's kind of an extension of one of your articles? Well, I think, I mean, I, I, because I wanted to really not be encumbered by having to have all of the facts laid out. I mean, you know, and I wanted to imagine things and let my imagination, you know, run wild again of what, you know, could have happened or should have happened. Um, and, you know, and I wanted to try to, uh, you know, particularly my first book, I was, I was trying to show uh, a paradigm that I'd seen play out over and over and over and over again in Afghanistan and sort of tell the story of that war um, in micro, you know, where there's this one village, there's this one militia, um, there's these handful of characters. Um, so, you know, that was sort of like the ambition for that book. And I, you know, I, it wouldn't be one that I would have done in nonfiction. Um, but, you know, I feel in writing fiction and writing nonfiction that there's a lot of overlap in the skills that you're using. Um, uh, a lot, I would say, you know, probably 80, you know, 80% overlap. Um, but, uh, but I, you know, and I also think that kind of in, you know, American or in English letters, 
we seem to fetishize, you know, the genrefication of our books and our literature and fiction and nonfiction when like, you know, you know, how many, you know, how many novels have you read where it's clearly, you know, work of memoir? I mean, you go read Carlo and Osgard, right? They brand those as novels. They're clearly not novels. Um, or what we think of as as novels, you know, right? And then go read a writer like, um, you know, read some of Joan Didion's nonfiction or read um, Michael Hare. I mean, you know, those writers or, you know, or uh, Rizyard Kapuczynski. I mean, those writers, they, you know, they write nonfiction, but it's, you know, extremely stylized. You know, lots of things are cut out, very impressionistic. I mean, it might as well be a novel. So, um, and who cares, you know, I mean, who cares? Obviously in nonfiction, you can't just make things up out of whole cloth, but I mean, past that, um, you know, I, 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 I think we sort of, uh, we focus too much on that. You know, a friend of mine who's a poet likes to say one of the great things about being a poet is that, you know, there's no such thing as fiction or nonfiction or poetry. It's just poetry. Yeah. I mean, this is a, one of those instances where, um, you know, the publishing industry kind of gets in the way of, of what people in the past or what people today might just call storytelling. Yeah. Do you have a preference? Like, do you enjoy writing one more than the other? I wouldn't say that I necessarily have a preference. I would say that one feeds the other in a way. Like, my fiction doesn't really feed my nonfiction. I mean, maybe it does. Writing fiction teaches you how to tell a story, you know, maybe how to land a line or, or you know, convey imagery in a certain way. And, you know, I mean, so there's some that maybe helps with my nonfiction. But I feel like my nonfiction usually um, helps my fiction in so much as, you know, I have often found themes that have appeared in my journalism working their way into my novels. Um, so uh, and oftentimes maybe the first draft of a novel you can see in my nonfiction. Like, for instance, if you, know, you were to sit down with all of the journalism I wrote in the last three years and you were to sit, you know, sit down with all that journalism and a copy of Dark at the Crossing, you know, I could show you a roadmap of the novel and some of that journalism. Hey, Jeff, guess what time it is? 9.23 p.m. It's advertising time. Oh, hell yeah. It's time to talk about vitamins. Yeah, let me tell you, the only time I really talk about vitamins is when my doctor tells me that I'm so vitamin D deficient that uh, it might actually warrant a trip to the emergency room. Your doctor hasn't actually said that, has he? No, but he did threaten uh, to put an IV in my arm the next time I was there to make sure that I had actually gone outside and gotten some sunlight. It must suck working in a cave. I work in a cave. There are no windows. Well, boy, do I have a solution for you. Uh, can I can I solve my problem in my cave, from my cave? You sure can. So if you go to TakeCareOf.com, you can take a quiz to get your personalized vitamin recommendation. You can literally say, I want more energy, I don't get enough sunlight, I'm sick all the time, and it'll give you your own daily vitamin recommendation. They'll send it to you in a nice customized package. And right now, thanks to the great audience that we have for writers who don't write, you can use offer code WRITE. W-R-I-T-E to get 50% off your first month of care of. They don't even care that you live in a cave. Oh man, this is going to be... Do you think they have something that will allow me to avoid leafy greens entirely? I mean, I, I'm sure that they do, but I don't... <laughs> are we there yet? <laughs> Has science saved me from salads? They are expensive nowadays. I mean, you, you've written two books now that both take place from, uh, you know, the perspective of somebody who is, you know, living out some kind of conflict in the Middle East. Um, 
you know, and you've you've had these experiences from a very different perspective. Uh, you know, was it like kind of a conscious decision? Because I know in the past in interviews you've said that like you didn't initially intend to tell Green on Blue, your first novel, you know, from an Afghan point of view. No, I didn't. Um, you know, I initially, you know, the book, I mean, the book is all told in the first person uh, from the perspective of an Afghan militiaman. But um, originally that character, the book was sort of had this Conradian structure where, um, you know, sort of like, um, um, you know, where the story is being told, Marlowe's telling his story on the boat in the Thames, uh, you know, the heart of the heart of darkness opens. So it was this, um, this Afghan basically, you know, walks onto an American base and starts telling his story um, to an intelligence officer on the base. And so that was the original construct of the book. That was actually, I sold the book with that construct. And the editor I was working with was said to me, you know, Elliot, you know, this is what works, this is what doesn't. And one of the things I think isn't working is this American character to whom the story is being told, um, his name in the first draft was actually Marty, um, which is the name of the character in Dark at the Crossing. But he said, you know, Marty, you know, he yeah. just seems two-dimensional. Yeah. So you need to sort of figure out if you're going to make him a bigger character. Or like, what are you going to do? But this just isn't working for me. And so I thought about that. And I was like, you know, why did I set up the book this way? You know, why do I have Aziz, who's the, who is the protagonist of the book, telling his story to Marty? And then we, as the reader, are experiencing the story from Marty's uh, point of view. And I realized because when I first started telling that book, I was scared to try to inhabit this character disease completely. So I put in this American filter there really for myself, writing it to give myself permission uh, that you know I'm not Aziz. I'm the guy who Aziz is telling the story to. So I basically realized, you know, my editor said, I was like, you know, this book is going to succeed or fail on the merits of Aziz's voice. And you kind of need to just... Uh, you know, have the courage of your convictions here and go all in, Elliot, and you rip out this Marty character and let Aziz speak directly to the reader. And, uh, you know, that is what wound up being the uh, the final version. But just as a side, as I mentioned to you, so, you know, Marty, I really wanted to use that name in a book. You know, my mother was going to name me Martin um, when I was a baby. And I think until I was about eight months, that was my huh. name, Martin. And then she... Um, she finally said, you know, I will love the name. Maybe I should look it up. So she looked it up and, you know, Martin comes from Mars. So it means he who loves war. So she changed my name to Elliot, um, ironically. So, um, but so I always wanted to have this character named Marty, you know, and in Dark at the <laughs> Crossing. Yeah, and here I am. But in Dark at the Crossing, you know, the Marty character is sort of like a, um, you know, I always thought of them had, you know, if, if Mark Zuckerberg went to war, he would be Marty in Dark at the Crossing. And so, um, and that name was very intentional. Um, this sort of war profiteer whose name is Marty. So I want to go back for a second, just because you mentioned something that I I wanted to talk about. Um, you mentioned building in the American character to give yourself permission. And what I was interested in, uh, one of the things that I found striking about Dark at the Crossing was the how deep into the culture you go in exploring the motivations of the different characters. So I wanted to know what your process is like for digging down deep into the culture of a character uh, like Aziz or like Harris and how much, I guess, how cautious are you in approaching it and how do you deal with that sort of anxiety that you mentioned having before? 
you know, I think you just do what, I mean, my focus, my focus is on good writing, you know, and, uh, part of writing well is telling a story that feels, you know, true to the characters, emotionally true to the characters. It's, you know, understanding the, um, you know, the conditions under which those characters are operating. Um, and, you know, and, and I think when you have, at least when I feel that, you know, I, you know, have that understanding, have done the work, you know, that's when, um, you know, you earn your, your bones as an author from authority. So, um, you know, with, you know, with green on blue, you know, I has, you know, spent years like living and working in these units. I mean, you know, many of my best friends have been, um, the guys I fought alongside and they weren't Americans. Many of them were Afghans, but, um, for us in so many ways, what I assert in the book is that, you know, we had more in common with each other. You know, I have more in common with the Afghan soldiers I fought with and had that huge experiences with, you know, than I do with the guys I went to high school with. I mean, much more in common with those Afghans. And, um, you know, and same with, you know, that the interplay in Dark at the Crossing between Harris and Jim, you know, Jim's this American special forces soldier in Harris's past. And sort of through that, Jim is the one telling Harris, you know, you might not like me, and you might have a lot of misgivings about me, but you and I have been similarly defined by this experience, um, which is the war in Iraq, which sort of haunts Harris in many ways. And, you know, and the book is sort of an exploration of, you know, Harris's separate, separate non-war identity, than the identity, the, you know, the wartime identity he has, you know, which he shares with people, um, both American and Syrian, that he has misgivings about. So it's sort of him wrestling with that identity. You know, so when you talk about that, you know, I mean, those are things, you know, I understand um, just in a lot of detail from from my own experience. So, I mean, you know, in many respects, I mean, Harris is sort of is, is me in a lot of ways. The one that's hardest for me to understand how to to go about approaching is, and without trying to give too much away, there's a character in this novel who's actually uh, with Daesh, and he is not totally unsympathetic. And I just, like... Tr- trying to think my way through approaching that just seems like the biggest stumbling block I would encounter if I were trying to write the same thing without much perspective into the culture. Yeah. I I think as, as a writer, you know, you, you have an obligation. I feel like I have an obligation with any character that steps onto the page is that I need to allow them to make their case to the reader as though they're making their case before God. So, you know, the character who is an Islamic state fighter, you know, I, I, I want to hear from him, um, exactly how he views the world. And, um, you know, and, you know, again, as a journalist, um, you know, I've met with guys who were former members of Al Qaeda uh, or members of the Islamic state, um, you know, and heard their, their point of view. And, um, you know, some of it I can, I can understand, you know, there's parts of, you know, I can, I can understand how being, you know, a 20, 30 year old male living in the Middle East right now, Iraqi or Syrian, you're Sunni, you know, I can understand how you would be, you know, militarized and want to fight and feel like you needed to carve out um, this, you know, a separate state. You know, and, you know, and there's certain places where I don't understand, but, you know, I sit there and I listen. And then when it comes time to write the character, um, you know, I do the best job I can do of, of trying to bring the reader into their into their point of view without being, you know, draconian or didactic about it. Um, but to, you know, try to give an honest rendering so that the reader can then make up their mind about, you know, as to what they think. 
And did you encounter that same stumbling block with Dark at the Crossing at all, where you needed to give yourself the the sort of permission you were seeking when you wrote Green on Blue? Um, less, less so. Uh, I, I, I think, you know, part of that too is just the form. I mean, you know, the writing in the first person is very, very intimate. And, you know, Dark at the Crossing is written, I mean, it's written in a close third person. So, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't, isn't quite as intimate. And, um, you know, and Harris is really this man of sort of two, two identities. Um, so, uh, you know, I think if you know what the story is and you know who your characters are, um, you know, you, you go with the story. And, you know, and frankly, I, I, I have a fundamental worldview that is people, you know, across cultures and genders and races like, you know, uh, you know, we have far more in common as a species than we do different. Um, and I think we have huge capacities to understand one another. And I think it's sad when there are voices in our society who assert that we don't have the capacity to understand each other, that some people's experiences are beyond the understanding of other people's. I think that's like an incredibly cynical way to look at the world. And I think it's anti-intellectual and antithetical to what storytelling does. You know, at the end of the day, storytelling, I think, and frankly, all art, I think, is what we are in the business of doing as artists is what I would call emotional transference. What I mean by emotional transference is, you know, how many, how many times have you ever, you know, gone to a museum and seen like an incredible painting that like takes your breath away or, you know, seen a film and cried at the end of the film or read a book and thought about it for days and days afterwards, like and felt something, you know, so if you've ever seen a piece of work and felt something, you know, the artist has in effect transferred to you some part of the emotion they were feeling when they created that artwork. I'll tell you when I'm writing and my writing is going well, like I feel something as I'm telling the story. And if you feel a little bit of what I felt, then I've transferred that emotion to you. And frankly, that and all art is an assertion of the, of our shared humanity. And it's an incredible, I think it's an incredibly optimistic act. I think it's like the most optimistic thing you can do in the world is through art assert that we as people are all the same and our experiences are within the understanding of, of one another across race, culture, gender. And, uh, and I think to assert otherwise, as is often the case these days, is, is cynical and, as I said, anti-intellectual uh, on every level. Well, at least now we know where you stand. Well, yeah, you know where I stand. But there, well, I, what I was going to say, there must be... There must be some room for the opposite, though, because there must be acts that you can't understand. Like, there must be the duality, right, that we see in Harris, where there are some acts that are innately inaccessible to him. And I'm thinking particularly of the end. I don't want to give it away. But that's something that I don't, like, that's, wouldn't that be something that would be hard to square with that worldview? People often conflate understanding something with agreeing with it, right? Like, I can understand a lot of things. Doesn't mean I agree with them. You know, I understand how yes. we get there. You know, like, for instance, there was a, um, about a year, year and a half ago, there was a news story um, with regards to the Islamic State. And it was about how in the Pentagon, um, the Pentagon had convened a senior task force of three and four-star generals to study Islamic State recruiting materials 
because these generals, they just couldn't understand how the Islamic State, how it could possibly convince, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old males who were living in Western Europe or even in the U.S. to leave their comfortable homes and just on this sort of uh, romanticized uh, propaganda saying, come to Syria, create a new caliphate, you know, you'll be like the Prophet Muhammad's companions. Why anyone would leave, you know, all of the, uh, all of the comforts of Western life to go do this, to go, you know, why would a bunch of 20-year-olds living in Western Europe or the U.S. go halfway across the world to fight a war in the desert? It made no sense to these generals. Like, how? Just from watching propaganda. I remember laughing with some Marine friends of mine and be like, are you kidding me? Like, these three and four-star generals cannot figure out how by watching a bunch of propaganda and being told a great story, you know, why a bunch of 20, 21-year-old guys would go halfway across the world to fight a war in the desert? you got to be fucking kidding me. Like, we're the best at this. This is all we've done. I mean, you know, watch the recruiting commercials for the Marine Corps. Like, they don't get it. <laughs> I get it. Doesn't mean I'm going to go join the Islamic State, but I get it. I've watched, you know, I've read Dabiq. I've watched, I've watched their recruiting materials. Their videos are slick, you know, and I totally get how if you're 21 years old, you know, living in Belgium, uh, you know, as an immigrant and you, you know, and the people you don't feel particularly welcome, you can't get a job and you have someone saying, why don't you come back to, you know, come to uh, Araka and, you know, and fight with your brothers to create a new state where, you know, I get it. You know, I don't agree with it, but I completely understand it. Um, so, you know, I think what, you know, would we live in a, you know, would we live in a world where more people would sit there and actually just try to get it? And so I'm consistently amazed um, by, you know, oftentimes just our, the lack of empathy that can exist in understanding people whose worldviews are diametrically opposed to you. You know, it's worth, if you know, if the, the first step in trying to counter those diametrically opposed worldviews is understanding them. And if one won't even make the effort to understand them, you'll never counter them with a set of, uh, with a value proposition that, 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 uh, that's better. So have you been receiving any like press or praise or, or uh, criticism of your book outside of the United States? I'm really curious if anybody, you know, in Syria or Afghanistan or, or anywhere in the Middle East has read your book and, you know, and kind of, uh, you know, put their thoughts on paper. Well, the, you know, sadly, um, the publishing industry in Afghanistan is not as, uh, it's not as robust as we would like it to be. So I did a little bit of television in Afghanistan when the book came out. Um, that was about it. For instance, like I don't have an Afghan publisher. It has not been translated into Pashto or Dari for my first book. Um, it came out in Turkey and you know had a nice reception there, but that's about as far east as we went. Mm -hmm. um, and then Dark at the Crossing um, is just coming out internationally. It's come out of the UK, came out in Italy um, and some other places. I mean, I think what's interesting, for instance, with Green on Blue, uh, Green on Blue came out in the Ukraine and uh, you know it was very warmly received, which was nice. Because um, I think what was interesting is, you know, that's a culture that's really been grasping with sort of conflict and, and these ideas of perpetual war, um, which is a theme that's very prevalent in Green on Blue. And so I was very interested going to um, book tour in Ukraine um, to talk with Ukrainians who um, really felt that, uh, that they were in a similar spot uh, with their war that was being fought in the East and that they could not see 
how the war was going to end. Um, so, um, you know, so, so that was an interesting response to get. I guess ultimately what I'm wondering about is like if anybody considered this like cultural appropriation or anything like that, which I by no means think this is, but you know, it is kind of curious because it's something that we grapple with all the time in the U S I will say on the cultural appropriation, I mean, that seems to be a uniquely, you know, American conception of that seems to be of this moment of, you know, in vogue in the last few years. Um, you know, and as I said before, I think it's, complete lunacy i mean by those standards we should you know take let's take the merchant of venice throw it in the trash can we should burn othello you know that you're not allowed to write that play i think that um you know, <laughs> the, you know the problem i have with a culture appropriation is like who has the authority to tell the story then and who decides who has the authority and frankly you know i've been on the opposite end of this as a vet you know mm. i will tell you as a veteran i mean that is a very specific experience and what about the people writing war stories about Iraq and Afghanistan who never served in Iraq and Afghanistan? You know, what about Billy Lynn's long halftime walk? I mean, Ben's a very good friend of mine. You know, Ben's never been to Iraq or Afghanistan. You know, or Roxana Robinson's Sparta. Mm -hmm. Are they allowed to tell those stories? I think damn straight they are. Yeah. You know, and they told some great stories. And they're supposed to tell those stories. And I applaud them for doing so. But, you know, there are a lot of veterans I met who very upset by those books you know, thought those people did not have the right or the authority to tell those stories. And again, my last point, like, that's completely antithetical. That's not what art and, and particularly writing fiction is about. Um, it's about, you know, asserting our shared humanity, trying to tell, trying to tell that story. Um, so I, you know, I don't know. I think it's a really, writers who are advocating, you know, these rules and are appointing themselves the, uh, uh, the arbiters of what is and is not acceptable you know, within their very narrow fields. I think it's, as I said, I think it's anti-intellectual. Frankly, I think it smacks of a, a, a form of uh, authoritarianism um, that sort of, you know, reminds me of like the 1930s. So um, I, hope we'll, I hope we'll move through this period and people can just focus on, focus on writing the best books they can. So, I mean, the, the issue comes when people are just like flagrantly, you know, disrespectful with it. I think the issue comes when people write something that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you write something that's Fair just in ba it's just in bad taste, it's in bad taste. But you shouldn't you shouldn't say it's unacceptable. You shouldn't say it's unacceptable, unacceptable because of cultural appropriation. That shouldn't be your objection. Your objection should just be it's a lousy piece of art. There are people that will you know argue for the quality of something that like at that point it becomes objective based on who's thinking that it's good art or bad art. And in any case, you know we bring we do bring writers on the show to discuss you know the one story they always struggle to tell. And you had sent over a couple options, uh, you know, for us to peruse. And you know, I'm wondering um, if you wouldn't mind discussing the the Marines United scandal piece that you wrote for Esquire. You know, well, I have, um, I think over the, I recently wrote a piece uh, about the Marines United scandal, which was a nude photo sharing scandal over Facebook that happened in the Marine Corps, uh, probably about uh, six months ago now is when it really broke. And, um, uh, but I have been writing on this issue of gender integration in the military for, uh, for a while. Uh, I think the first piece I wrote on it was probably in uh, 2013. And um, I think it was a, uh, it was a hard story to tell, 
both before the decision was made to fully integrate the military across all combat arms. So what that meant was, you know, before women were allowed to be in, you know, 95% of jobs, there was still this sliver like the infantry and tanks and special operations where women were not allowed. And then the decision was made um, at the end of the Obama administration to allow women to integrate into all fields. And then there was this transition period. So sort of, you know, writing about it before the decision was made, you know, there was sort of, you were writing about arguments one way or the other, should we or should we not? And once the decision was made, you were sort of writing about the implementation. Um, but, you know, it was a, the Marines United Esquire story was, it was a, I don't want to say that, that story was particularly difficult to write, but it was more writing on this subject as a whole was difficult. And I would say, you know, the, uh, the reason why it was the most difficult, because it was just one of these topics where people were so heated and angry about it one way or another. It was very difficult to, to have any nuance in terms of the arguments you were making. And I think, uh, you know, what I mean specifically is, as I started writing about this topic, I kind of had less, less, less of an interest in terms of, um, or less of an, less, less of an ax to grind on whether or not the military should or should not integrate women, um, the arguments I was trying to put forward was, hey, if this is going to happen, what's the best way to do it? And, um, you know, I'm trying to put forward, like, maybe we should consider, you know, integrating in this way. Maybe we should do special operations first instead of the infantry first. Um, but it was tough to write those pieces because all of the nuance immediately got blown out the window. Um, and to give you an example, I... Um, one of the first things I wrote was a piece for the Atlantic on this. And I was advocating, this was before the decision had been made to integrate women, but I was trying to make the point that, or the argument that, you know, the best place to first integrate women, women would be in the special operations community because it's a smaller community. Um, it's an older community. So the people there, the men there at the time are more mature. And it's one where if a, f a few women could make a far bigger impact because it is a smaller community. And if they were successful in special operations, places like the infantry or armor or tanks really wouldn't have much of a position to say, well, these women aren't tough enough because they would have been succeeding in special operations. So, you know, not a hugely complex argument to make, but maybe one with a little bit of nuance. And I submitted it with the headline of um, let's not be dumb grunts about this, referring to, you know, dumb infantrymen, which I thought was sort of a, hey, here's a smart way to do it headline. And the Atlantic ran it with um, the case for the case for female seals, which was, you know, not the argument at all. So, um, so you know, that was a topic I think writing on it that was just uh, it was very tough and still tough, frankly, to get a lot of nuance into the debate. And is um, you know, I mean, the military is a small segment of our society, but within that kind of closed culture, it is um, it's still a really really heated topic. And I'm surprised every time I I, I wade into that topic. Um, just how upset people can get. Putting nuance into any piece of journalism in, in the internet age seems to be more difficult than ever. You know, when people, when editors and, and, uh, you know, publications are chasing clickbait titles and that kind of thing. Um, so do you think that had anything to do with, uh, you know, that particular article? Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, the cover art they used for the article was a picture of um, Demi Moore and G.I. Jane. I mean, I could have shot myself when I saw it. Just, just you know, just because it was like the least nuanced. It was the, the most obvious graphic with the least nuanced headline. Uh, I mean, God bless the gang at the Atlantic. I love them, but that, that was not my, uh, it was not, would not have been my first choice. 
So, you know, I, I think it's difficult and there's so much content coming at people these days um, that, uh, you know, sometimes it's, uh, it, can be, it can be a challenge to, uh, to get the message out there. So how did that, so how did the reaction to that story characterize how you approached uh, the one you wrote for Esquire about the nude photo scandal? How did you, how did you deal with the, the sort of territory you knew you were approaching? It really didn't. Um, you know, I, uh, I made my peace a long time ago with the fact that you're just going to piss some people off. So, um, so, you know, so, so, you know, so the idea of, you know, feeling like, cause there was some backlash on that Atlantic story that I wouldn't write the one for Esquire didn't enter my mind. Um, it was that one for Esquire was a very different story. You know, the person who broke this Marines United scandal, um, coincidentally, was a Marine turned journalist named Thomas Brennan, who I served alongside in the infantry. So when he broke the story, I you know approached him and he said, you know, I, there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff here that I haven't been able to write about. And we talked about it and decided that I would sort of write the, the story of the story for lack of a better term and what he had to go to, 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 to get the word out about what was uh, taking place with Marines United. Well, Elliot, I, I know you need to go. Um, we would keep you here all night if we could, but uh, where where can our listeners find you online? Um, I'm on Twitter at uh, at Elliot Ackerman and uh, um, I have a website ElliotAckerman.com and wherever wherever good wherever good books are sold. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Elliot. Hey, yeah. thank you guys. Thank you, Elliot. And good luck with the National Book Awards. Thanks so much. So that was Elliot Ackerman. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. You can find Elliot's work and all of his books at ElliotAckerman.com. He's on all of the social medias, uh, and you should give him a follow because he, he tweets all of his stories, which are all brilliant. Uh, you can find us online at www.podcast.com or by searching The Podglomerate, which brings you all kinds of fun and exciting shows. Uh, we have a new show with The Podglomerate called Two Girls, One Podcast from The Daily Dot, and it is doing really well. Uh, you've probably seen it because it's featured on, on literally all of the podcast apps right now. Uh, so give it a listen. Let us know what you think. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at WWDW Podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, the music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour is from Ryan Dan of Holland Patent Public Library. You can find him online at hollandpatentpubliclibrary.com. And the music that you heard in the middle of the show under the ad for Care Of was from Ben Sound, who you can find at bensound.com. And make sure to use offer code WRITE, W-R-I-T-E, at takecareof.com to get your own customized and curated vitamin pack. We'll see you in two weeks where we have Amy Rose Spiegel, the author of Action, a book about sex. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.